my name is Rainer Meyer, and I have the privilege of uh, leading this church as one of the pastors, and uh, I'm really excited to also preach the word to you this morning. So uh, today's theme is a fellowship city nurtures justice. A fellowship city nurtures justice. We are in part six of a seven-part series, and the reason for us doing this series is to figure out, to listen, and to learn what we ought to nurture as individuals and a church. We want our church to make an impact, not only in our city, but also everywhere we go and move. And therefore, we ought to know how we should live and what we should do. We are also a Bible teaching church. So the whole purpose of this series is to see what the Bible tells us as the body of Christ, as his family, as his people. And then to ask the question, what would this mean for us to nurture these things? So we have done Fellowship City Nurtures Grace. We've spoken about Christ-likeness. We've spoken about empathy. We've spoken about people first. And we have spoken about truth. And like I said, today would be a conversation or a sermon on the topic of justice. Now, if I say to you, a fellowship city nurtures justice, and we just read the text from Matthew that we just did, at first glance, I wonder if anyone would say no to this. I wonder if I would ask the question, who does not want justice? Who, don't, who doesn't think that justice is a good thing? Who doesn't think that we don't need justice? I would like to make the argument that all of us would say, absolutely, we do need this. Maybe one level deeper, some of you might have yearned or sought after or seeked justice in your own life. It might be that you've been in a situation where you have pleaded not only with people, but also with God, that justice would prevail. It's a word that loosens emotions and thoughts in our hearts and in our minds. Maybe you haven't, maybe you haven't been in a situation like that, but we all know that there's something about the word justice that just feels right. So if something happens that we deem to be right, we say justice prevailed, or justice was served, or justice was done. Now, here's what we're going to do today, and uh, I just want to put on this slide uh, for the note takers and also the photo takers. I realize in the age of digital church, taking a photo is the same as taking some notes. I've often seen on the frames on screen when we put up something like this, instead of people taking the old moleskin and the pen, they take out their phones and they go, oh, 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 I just need to get a snap of this real quick. So there you go. If you're a photo taker, you can take a photo. If you are a note taker, take some notes. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do three things today, three points. Why did Jesus react the way he did? Okay, so we have to spend some time in the scriptures and we have to spend some time understanding Matthew 15. Second point, what is the biblical vision of justice and how does it tie to righteousness? So I'm going to introduce a second word here, which is righteousness, and you'll see where it comes from in the Bible. And then the third really important application question for all of us is how can we nurture justice. So there we go, guys. Why did Jesus react the way that what's the biblical vision of justice now does it tie to righteousness? And also, how can we nurture justice? Before we do that, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we sung this morning uh, about what a beautiful and a powerful name you have. Um, we spoke, or we sang about you being there before all creation. We've sang that you are the only one that is worthy to open the scroll, you and you alone. 
these words resonate in our minds and in our hearts, Lord Jesus, because as we sing them as your people, we get a bigger vision of who you are. You grow big in our minds and in our hearts, and we just want to fall in worship and in awe in front of you because you are the one that is worthy. Lord Jesus, you spoke to us through your word this morning, and now we are tuning ourselves in to be obedient to you, to learn from you, and to be transformed by your word and by your spirit. I pray that we would not leave this meeting room unchanged, but that we would say that we had an experience or an encounter with the living God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We pray that your name be glorified. We pray that we would have some real good focus as we work through the scriptures. We pray that all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so why did Jesus react the way he did? I just want to check my, my next slide here. Let's get some context for the scripture we just read, which comes from Matthew chapter 15. I'm not expecting of you to be able to read what is on this map. I just want to show you a map of the gospel according to Matthew. It's important whenever we read a gospel account that we remember that it comes from someone's pen, right? So in this slide, it's Matthew. It has a specific structure and flow, right? It's this tapestry that was woven together of all of these stories. And it's written for a specific purpose with a specific message in mind to a specific crowd of people. So if you just look at this map at first glance, you go, wow, Matthew is amazing, firstly. And secondly, sure, there's quite a lot going on here. There's some things that I have to pay attention to. So that's the gospel of Matthew. Now, if I just zoom into this part of the year, which is chapters 14 to 20, you'll see that the main theme of these chapters that we just read from is that there is different expectations about the Messiah from different groups of people. So you've got Jewish people, you've got non-Jewish people. There's a specific focus on the Pharisees, even on Peter and the disciples, even people more a little bit outside or a few degrees away from all the action. And everyone is grappling with this question. So who is he? Is he now the suffering servant that Isaiah speaks? of, or is he going to be a victorious king and he's going to take up throne in Jerusalem? His message sounds strange to us, right? You see the block on the right there, the upside down kingdom. Jesus is speaking and he's teaching, but it sounds upside down. It sounds different than we expected. So who is he? Whose authority does he have? And what do we believe of him? So that's where we are in the book of Matthew, right? So the, uh, Jesus is revealing himself as a new Moses. He brings a new law. He's interpreting that law. And now it's really about people either accepting it or not accepting it. And then Jesus enters into this conversation, which is the first nine verses of Matthew 15 that we just read. Now, this conversation, guys, is a debate. Okay, It's an argument. It is a war of words. It was common in the first century, specifically in a community or a civilization that functioned heavily on honor and shame. If I can bring honor to my family's name, I'm going to try my utmost to do it. If someone brings shame over my family's name, it is real, real shame and a tragedy. So what was commonplace in Jesus' time is people would enter into these debates 
in public spaces, people would hear, oh, there's a war of words going on there. Let's go and have a look. And then whoever wins that debate wins honor for their name. And when I win honor for my name, I can also bring shame over someone else. Now, if you read the gospel accounts, or just think back at least to everything you've read, you would have seen these debates between Jesus and scribes, people, um, uh, that, that were knowledgeable about the law, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, other groups of people that Jesus spoke about, because people wanted to shame him, because by shaming him, you would take away some of the authority or weight behind his words. And now Jesus enters into this conversation. So I hope on whatever device you have, uh, or if it is a paperback Bible that you're reading from, just keep open your Bible at Matthew chapter 15. Okay, so for now, I'm just going to stop sharing my screen. So just a couple of notes on just a few of the verses. So look at verse 4 again. Look at verses uh, 5 to 6 again. And look at verses 7 to 9 again. Remember, we want to answer the question, why does Jesus react the way that he does? So the thing that you need to see on verse 4 is really clear. The teaching of the written Torah, this is now the law as found in the first five books of the Bible, which is commonly referred to as the books of Moses, is it's unmistakable and it is emphatic. It is clear. And here's the teaching. Parents are to be cared for and indeed with proper respect. In effect, this is how the law works. Denial of support to one's parents was the same as speaking evil against them. Right? So this is what the people of Jesus are speaking to. Actually, they know this and Jesus knows this. Text references, if you are a note taker, Exodus 20 verse 12, as well as Deuteronomy 5 verse 16. Okay. Now in verse 6, by contrast with what God says, however, the Pharisees promoted a practice that violated the spirit and the letter of the fifth commandment. Okay, now this is Jesus' accusation against them. He says, you know what you are meant to do, but you do something else. And you do something else out of a selfish ambition because you want to gain honor for yourself. Now, if we know what we are meant to do, but we sometimes do the wrong thing, it doesn't necessarily even mean that it only comes from selfish ambition. It might even be, be because of religious conviction, right? So the Pharisees said that I know I'm, I'm supposed to do this and care for my parents, but man, bringing this as an offering to God, that might give me even better standing with God. So even through religious conviction, they knew what they were meant to do. They did the wrong thing, but they justified it and said, there's a reason for me doing this okay so this is what's going on here so it's very clear what they have to do but now they do something else and they do it in the name of tradition right they do it in the name of common belief okay now what Matthew does is in verse 7 to 9 he takes an Old Testament citation from Isaiah 29 verse 13 and with that he seals the case against the Pharisees and here's the case against the Pharisees it is an issue of hypocrisy. Now, I mean, I'm not saying they're hypocrites. Jesus said it in verse 7. The hypocrisy could probably be best described as a pretense of obeying the will of God while, in fact, transgressing it. Can I give that definition again? The pretense of obeying the will of God while, in fact, transgressing it. Now, hypocrisy 
The art of seeming to be what one is not is a particularly important subject in the book of Matthew. But I'm just going to leave that one there for when you read Matthew again. Count the amount of times that you see the word hypocrites or hypocrites. Okay, question still. Why does Jesus react so fiercely against this thing that is happening right in front of his eyes? And here's the reason. Because human beings were made in the image of God and they were given a very specific title and commission. That is why Jesus reacts so fiercely. And that title and commission is good. And the commission is to do good, right? We were created good. That's what the, uh, the creation account says. And we were meant to do good, not hurt one another, not take life away from one another, not do things that hurt other image bearers of God. Let's take a quick glance through the Bible because I really feel like I want to make a strong case for the fact that Jesus is not reacting to a, a propaganda or a campaign of his day. Jesus is reacting out of a deep, deep theological conviction that what he sees is not right. And there are people responsible for it and justice needs to be done. Let me show you a couple of scriptures. Let's start all the way back in the first book of the Bible. Uh, in Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 9, oh my word, where am I now? I'm completely in, in the wrong window. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Hang on a second. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, this is after the flood. This is Noah receiving the commission to be a good human again. And it says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. Don't do it. For God made humans in his image. All the way back in the first book of the Bible. Words from God himself to human beings. Remember that you are a statue. You're a picture of me. You carry my image. Let's flip all the way to the New Testament. and Look at the words of the brother of Jesus himself called James. It says, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people, bold and underlines is my own addition, who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. So it's not something that was buried way back in Genesis 9, chapter 6. It's something that runs as a golden thread through the Bible that humans are image carriers of God himself, made in his likeness. That's why James, more towards the end of the Bible, brings this up again. Okay. So let's talk about humans. Let's talk about God's relationship with humans. And let's talk about God commissioning humans to do something specific here on earth. Let's go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in chapter 18, verses 18 to 19. And once again, bold and underline is my own addition. So this is a phenomenal story in the book of Genesis. You should actually read the whole chapter because Abraham and Sarah, they receive heavenly guests. But these two verses are hidden away in that story. But I think there are verses that's so important for us to understand what justice actually is. So it says, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord. And how do we keep the way of the Lord? By doing what is right and just. 
This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. Now, those two words are really important. Right and just. So there's two Hebrew words uh, that is the equivalent of those two words. So the word for justice is the word mishpat. And the word for right is also the same word for righteousness. And that is tzedakah. So mishpat and tzedakah, justice and righteousness. Now, these two words go together all through the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And it's important for us to take note of the origin of these two words. And that's all the way back in the first book of the Bible, where God says to a family, I will have done on earth what I want done on earth, because I'm the creator and the sustainer of everything. And here's what you should do. Do what is right and do what is just. Now, the best way for us to describe those two words would be make sure that everyone has what they need. Make sure that everyone has what they need to live, right? Because I'm the God who created life, created humans to live. So if you do justice, then you give everyone what they need to live. And then secondly, doing what is right or the word righteousness could be described as make sure that everyone is in the right relationship with one another. Isn't that just a phenomenal vision of life? Everyone has what they need to live. And secondly, everyone is in the right relationship with one another. Justice, righteousness. Abraham, this is what I want you and your family after you to go and do. This is what you ought to do as my people. Now, there's a really important shift here between that vision of justice and our modern day, more legal vision of justice. And that is the biblical vision of justice is give everyone what they need. The more legal, hardcore understanding of justice is give everyone what they deserve. So we'll circle back to that a little bit later. Just uh, on these two words, mishpat and tzedakah, you see like in the book of Proverbs, the righteous one is called tzaddik. Do you hear it? Tzedakah, tzaddik, righteousness, the righteous one. And in the book of Proverbs, tzaddik is always juxtaposed to, well, sorry, not juxtaposed, not put side by side, but like opposing the evil one, which in Hebrew is rasha. And what you'll see in the book of Proverbs is you'll see that tzaddik, right, the righteous one, works to further um, the well-being of others. The evil one works to further his own well-being. So there's something about sacrifice and being other-focused that is a hallmark or a characteristic of the righteous one. And then there's something about being selfish and only thinking about myself that is characteristic to the evil one. So we'll get back to that later as well when we answer the question, how should we nurture justice? Okay. Now, in the story of the Bible, after Genesis 18, God gives his law to his people. God does what is right and what is just. Why? Because he gives them everything they need to live, right, which is the law. And in the law, he gives them guidelines for how everyone is supposed to be in the right relationship with one another. So God doesn't charge his people to go and do what is right and just, and then he leaves them. God tells his people to go and do what is right and just, and then he gives them a gazillion guidelines of how to do it so that they can be sure 
that they are doing what is just and right and that everyone is in the right relationship with one another. So there you go. There's my law. Go and do what is just and what is right. Live with justice and righteousness um, as something that you further in this world. Now, if you know the history of the Old Testament or the history of the Bible, I can ask you this question. Did God's people do what God asked them? Was it possible for them to keep the law? And you know that that answer is no. Think about the words that Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 29 verse 13 that Jesus quotes in Matthew 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. God's people couldn't do it. And that's why the story of the Old Testament is such a rough, hurtful, unjust story of people hurting each other and not doing what they were supposed to do. We have to read it though, right? Because we have to get a sense for God's faithfulness and his awesomeness through the history of the world. And we also have to take warning from what happens if we don't do what is just and what is right. That's why we have to read that story. And then the northern kingdom, firstly, this is now speaking historically, uh, falls and gets taken over by the Assyrians. And then the southern kingdom, called Judah, also falls and gets taken over by the Babylonians. And all of a sudden, the people of God are literally in ruins. We don't have our temple anymore. We don't have our throne anymore. We don't have our holy city anymore. We don't have a place where we can worship anymore. Everything we knew is now lost to us. We were taken captive. We are in exile in a foreign country with foreign cultural practices, foreign languages, and foreign gods. And then the people of God write songs from that place, trying to recall what went wrong. One of the songs they wrote from that place is Psalm 89. And look at this beautiful verse in the middle of Psalm 89, verse 14. Ha, there we go. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. So, God, when we think of you as ruler, when we think of the world that has to look like the way that you created it, here's what I remember, says the psalmist, the person writing the song. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Everyone having what they need and everyone being in the right relationship with one another. We have not seen that in our earthly kingdoms, and that's why we are in the space we are in at the moment. So it never got lost. It was never forgotten. These two things go hand in hand together, and it is characteristic of the world that God wanted and the world that Jesus longs for in this passage that we read today. So let's fast forward to the New Testament real quick. So Jesus comes to earth, God as a human being, and he embodies what it means to live with mishpat and tzedakah, what it means to live a life of justice and righteousness, to do what is right and is just. And in this part of scripture that we read as our teaching text, Jesus calls people out on doing the wrong things. He shows people their sins and he shows an alternative way. Just think about the life of Jesus for a second. Jesus' love for people on the margins. Jesus' love for the downtrodden. Jesus' love for groups of people 
that had a really hard life in his time. We often hear widows. We often hear orphans. We often hear the poor. Jesus engages with these people. And he shows a way to treat them so that he can do what is right and what is just. Okay? So Jesus embodies these two characteristics. If you read Luke, this is a side note, in one sitting, you'll see that Luke turns up the volume really, really loud on this specifically. And Jesus, uh, Luke says that Jesus really cared for women and for children. So read the Gospel of Luke in one sitting and highlight every time you read something about women and children. In today's uh, teaching text, it was all about older people and your parents, specifically in a time when they cannot be economically active anymore. Now, here's what we need to see from this portion of Scripture. The error of the Pharisees and their scribes, as revealed here, is actually an irony, guys. It's a tragic irony. And here's the reason. Because they were the people who were in principle, this is the Pharisees now, most deeply committed to the practice to the practice of righteousness, of the Torah, right, of the law. They were the people whose very tradition was invented to realize that righteousness. They were supposed to be the leaders in this, and yet they are shown here to oppose and invalidate the commandment of God through that tradition, thinking that they are doing right, believing that they are doing right, but actually they are not. And then Jesus calls them on it. Now, the point that Matthew is making is that Jesus alone is the true interpreter and the true upholder of the ultimate meaning of the law. And for us, it is exactly the same. So this text speaks to us in the same way as it did to the people that he spoke to that day. Now, just think for a second. Let's just pause here. Think about the fact that Jesus gave his mishpat to us. Jesus gave us not what we deserved, because that would have been eternal death. Jesus gave us what we needed, and that is salvation through his blood, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, through which we gain eternal life. Like, that's what Jesus embodies. If Jesus gave us a justice that was only defined as what we deserve, none of us could stand. But Jesus gave his justice to us, his mishpat to us. He gave us what we needed to live. Not only that, he also worked for righteousness. Jesus reconciled us to God so that we can be in a relationship with him again. And he reconciled us to one another. Because in the same way that God forgave us, in that same way we forgive each other. This is the gospel message. Let's just marinate in that for a moment. Everything that I'm going to say from this point onwards should be viewed through the lens of the gospel and from that perspective. If we want to know what doing right and doing, uh, if we want to know what it looks like to do what is right and to do what is just or to live with justice and righteousness, Jesus is the example. This is why he reacts so intensely against the Pharisees doing what they did. You think you have it right, Jesus says, but you don't. Okay, so that's only the first point. I'll go a little faster uh, in the in the two second, uh, well, in the second and in the third point. 
That's why Jesus reacts the way that he does. Okay, so question. What is the biblical vision of justice and how does it tie to righteousness? Now, I already said that the biblical vision of justice is a broadening of just the understanding that everyone gets what they deserve. It is an understanding that says that everyone gets what they need. And then, together with that, relationships are being made whole. So I checked out Wikipedia, right, which is the authority in the world we live in at this moment. I'm joking, not necessarily, uh, but this is the definition that you'll find on Wikipedia for what justice is, okay? So let me read it to you. Justice, in its broadest sense, is the principle that people receive that which they deserve. With the interpretation of what then constitutes deserving being impacted by upon sorry being impacted upon by numerous fields with many differing viewpoints and perspectives, including the concepts of moral correctness based on ethics, rationality, law, religion, equity, and fairness. So this is a modern day broad description of what justice is. Now added to that. The biblical definition of justice leads to relationships being made whole. Now, let's look at a few headlines and a few important topics in our public space through this lens at this moment. Let's think of something like gender-based violence. Justice would not be done in the context of gender-based violence only when the perpetrator gets what he or she deserves, or when the perpetrator um, is brought to the book, or when the victim can go to bed in the evening with the assurity that the perpetrator is behind bars as the prosecution of law would lead them to be. We often advocate for that, and we should advocate for that, but through the lens of biblical justice, that is not justice being done. Justice being done in the context of gender-based violence, as an example, looking through the lens of biblical justice would mean that the person would be able to live again. This is the victim now. That what was taken from the victim will be given back to live life. Not only that, but there would be relational repair. All of us know that someone's sin against someone else has a ripple effect. So it's not only saying, yay, we've put people behind bars or they were brought to book. It's more than that. There's a human on both sides of that relationship that was impacted by the sin. So how would both of them get what they need to live again? How would both of them go forward in repairing all the relationships that took damage in that thing? So for us, only advocating for people to be brought to the book is a lesser view of biblical justice. We should be working, nurturing, and advocating for more. Let's think last year about the global uprise of Black Lives Matter, right, which led in South Africa to a response that said white lives matter and then farmers' lives matter. And then eventually there was like this global answer to this movement called All Lives Matter. For today, let me just call it Lives Matter, right? You remember what I spoke about? The problem with viewing something like that only through the lens of everyone getting what they 
deserve is we will forever be stuck in who's right and who's wrong and who needs to give what to who and who will eventually be satisfied to get what they asked for on all sides of the spectrum. A biblical view of justice would mean to stop the very thing that is taking life from human beings. And after we've stopped the very thing that is taking life from human beings, it would mean to give human beings what they need. Sometimes it would mean to give back to human beings what they need to live. And after you have given what they need to live, or after they have received what is needed to live in the context of biblical justice, it would mean to also work for righteousness, for relationships that need to be repaired, that got damaged in this situation. There's way more to it than only posting videos or having eloquent arguments for any side of the debate. We have to look at it deeper from a biblical point of view and say, if justice is really done in this context, it would look way more than only a protest, a t-shirt or a hashtag. There has to be something deeper that needs to shift. And we carry the keys for it. The church has the answer to it because the answer is the gospel, right? Because you'll never have reconciliation between the relationships if it's not from a lens of the gospel or from an application of the gospel. Think of something like corruption in our country or the SIU, the Special Investigative Unit, that has to bring people to book, right? That's the, that's the, um, um, the mission or the statement or the commission uh, uh, of that unit. Only bringing people to book that took something that was not theirs is not justice that is done or served out of a biblical perspective, maybe from a legal, legal perspective, but not from, from a biblical perspective. Justice would mean giving back. Justice would mean healing relationships that got hurt because of someone else's stealing or looting or taking. It's the same as in the context of hashtag unrest SA. Justice would not prevail or be served into, well, so, sorry, let me just say, so hashtag unrest essay is like the collective name for everything we've seen in our country over the last couple of weeks. Justice would not be served or done only if everyone is brought to book that did wrong. So if you instigated the violence, let's bring you to book. If you stole something that you weren't supposed to steal, let's bring you to book. That would not be justice being served. That is what people are crying out for. But for us as Christians, we have to look deeper from the biblical lens and ask what lies behind these things? What do people need to live a better life that lies behind these things. Who took what from who that led to these things? And how will those relationships be repaired? Then we would see justice and righteousness in a biblical sense. So not only is it advocating for something, it's more, it's stopping, it's giving, and it's repairing. I actually didn't think of those as three points, but let me float those out to you as three points, stopping, giving, and repairing. That's the vision, guys, of biblical justice. So if we say a fellowship city nurtures justice, that is the biblical vision that we are chasing, that we are pointing towards, that we are setting as our goal and as our vision. Now, let me be honest with you. Hashtags, activism, and protests won't get us there. I'm telling you that now. There is a place for them, absolutely, because it gives a voice, it brings into our thoughts and our hearts the things that are important, and most importantly, it sometimes gives a voice for people that do not have a voice. So I'm not against 
protests and activism and hashtags. I'm just saying that if we want to see real biblical justice happen, it's going to ask for more of us. It asks for more. Not motivated by guilt. Let me just throw some gospel in here. Motivated by grace. Motivated by this grand vision that the Bible gives us. Motivated by the fact that God wanted this for all his people forever through history of time. And he still wants it today for his people. God wants justice and he wants righteousness and we are his body we are the people bringing that into the world we are the people showing what this looks like we are the people through who the kingdom comes into this world and therefore we ought to nurture justice let me land how can we nurture justice four things And these four things will be the topics for your conversation in the breakout rooms. So know what justice looks like. Recognize injustice. Recognize the fallout that nurturing justice sometimes brings. Press on. That's a third word. Pressing on. And fourth, tell stories about doing the right thing. Let me just say something about all four of these points, and then I'll land for us. For us to do the right thing, we need to know what justice looks like. And for us, my dear brother and sister, it means measuring it to Jesus. I think that's one of our biggest problems in our current debates about what is justice and what is not, and the things that we are advocating for. We are using the wrong tools to measure our response. Our response should always be measured to Jesus. Secondly, We should recognize injustice. We have to, as Christians, develop a deep moral perception of what justice and injustice is so that we can recognize it. Sometimes it even comes from our own experiences as human beings. Sometimes you might have suffered injustice and therefore you recognize it clearly when you see it being done to someone else because you carry it in your own body. Sometimes you don't. But we need to have a deep, deep, deep perception of what it is so that we can recognize it, so that we can call it out, so that we can work for justice in those spaces. Third point, pressing on. This is just a word of encouragement, guys. If we are a church that nurtures justice, I promise you that we will get pushback. We will have fallout. Because recognizing injustice and working for justice with this grand biblical vision will lead to fallout because you'll have people who differ from you. You'll have people opposing you. They sometimes might even be in your own family. Press on. Be courageous because we have to do justice regardless of the fallout. I think that's one of the biggest problems of where the Pharisees got stuck in. They got stuck in tradition. They got stuck in their own practices. And therefore, it was easy for them to turn a blind eye to the injustice because everyone kind of prefers this way that we're doing it now. That doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that it's right. And we will be people in this city where God has placed us that will call those things out, that will experience fallout. Keep going. Press on. So knowing, recognizing, and pressing. And then the fourth one, we need to tell stories about doing the right thing. 
Stories where justice prevailed. Stories where righteousness came into being between people, God and people and people and each other. We have to have a passion for sharing these stories. We have to share these stories. For, for some reason, we have this unbelievable um, um, ability to forward stuff that confuses people, that stirs up the bite, that like loosens rage inside of people. We have to, as Christians, be as quick as we can to share stories that is a different narrative to those. Stories of where justice prevailed, stories of where we saw this grand vision of what God wants of earth, earth filled with justice and righteousness, the foundations of his throne, where we see that. Do you have a story like that? Because if you do, you can tell it when we have a time of fellowship. We are the body of Christ. We work for justice and righteousness. We nurture justice. We choose to sacrifice like Jesus did. We choose to care for those on the margins. We choose to be the book of Proverbs as Tzaddik and not the Rasha. We choose to look through a different lens at everything that is wrong so that what is right can be done. That is what a fellowship city does. And that is what we ought to do when it comes to our workplace, when it comes to our friends, when it comes to our family, when it comes to even ourselves, when it comes to the place where God has placed us, from your townhouse complex to your local shopping center, to your city, to your workspace. We nurture justice. And through that, we will see justice and righteousness from the small to the big. And eventually our city will become a fellowship city. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we hear you loud and clear. We also hear your rebuke this morning loud and clear. We don't want to turn a blind eye to injustice. We want to know what is the right thing to do. We want to recognize where we are wrong. We want to be courageous and respond and work for justice in this world that you've placed us. We want to be a story of justice that prevailed. Lord Jesus, please help us in this endeavor. Infuse us with your spirit. Lead us. Give us the knowledge and the wisdom. And please help us to grapple with these things, even though they are really difficult. Please help us not to feel overwhelmed, but to rather feel encouraged as we discuss these things in our groups. We pray that in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.